Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the, this evening's public lecture. I will introduce you to Madame Jocelyne Bourgeon in a moment. Um, first of all, I want to welcome you on behalf of the LSE Complexity Group, which is hosting um, this um, public lecture, to tell you, also to tell you who I am, because I expect most of you may not know me. I am, I am the uh, Eve Middleton Kelly, and I'm the director of the Complexity Group at the London School of Economics. You will understand in a moment the link between what is happening this evening and um, the complexity group. The running order for the um, evening um, will be, Jocelyne will speak for approximately um, 40 um, minutes. Uh, then we will take questions um, from the floor and we will end the evening with a reception. And um, there, will, there are also um, what Jocelyn will tell you is very much based on a book that just been published, which is available um, outside um, for you for you to buy. Let me tell you a little bit about Madame Jocelyn Bourgeon. Um, she is president of the Public Governance International and President Emeritus of the Canada School of Public Service. She is also a distinguished research professor at the University of Waterloo. She has had a distinguished career in the Canadian Public Service, has served as Deputy Minister of several major departments, um, and as Secretary to the Cabinet for Federal Provincial Relations, and later as Clerk of the Privy Council and secretary to the cabinet for five years. She is the only woman to have held the latter position, that is secretary to the cabinet, in Canada or in any other G7 country. So I think we're rather privileged to have her here this evening. Um, she has also published extensively um, on public administration, uh, and in 2008, she received the Sam Richardson Award for her article, The Future of the Public Service, A Search for a New Balance. Um, Madame Bourgeon is the recipient of six honorary degrees. Um, she was summoned to the Queen's Privy Council for Canada in 1998, and she has been a member of the Order of Canada since 2001. Now, as an expert in governance and public sector, Madame Bourgeon provides advice to various governments, um, and she was the project leader of the New Synthesis Project. Now, this is really what I want to tell you a little bit more about. Um, Madame Bourgeon has done the almost impossible. She has brought together six governments to look at the new um, framework of governance for government using complexity theory. The six governments are Australia, Brazil, Canada, Netherlands, Singapore, and the UK. What happened was each of the countries hosted a round table, but also produced case studies um, locally of issues that were great challenges. 
What Madame Boujon has done is she has brought the insights of those roundtables together in this uh, book, A New Synthesis of Public Administration. But I think uh, what she will tell us this evening is to outline the, the framework of governance for government. What you will also find in the book is a wealth, an absolute plethora of cases that I think one or other or several will actually um, be, um, be relevant to perhaps the areas you may be looking at. So I would now like to introduce Madame Boujon and ask her to talk to us about the framework. Now I think I'm going to move over there so that I can also enjoy the presentation. Thank you. And thank you all for being here. Um, I realized that I did my usual, which is it's not going to be an easy lecture. I'm not going to make it easier by presenting all kinds of examples, but I'm assuming that in the course of the discussion, you will move me to that by asking questions relevant in the circumstances and in the context, and that is always the best way, in my mind, of learning from you, but also of discussing examples which happen to be relevant in the circumstances. So what I will do is exactly what Mrs. Uh, uh, Eve Middleton-Kelly said. I will present to you the framework. I'd like to say we forget the power of a mental map sometimes. And it's a dangerous thing to forget because there's nothing more useful than a good theory and nothing more dangerous than one that did not keep up with the time. And I don't know how many of you are students of public administration or students of government or student of governance, but there's a real risk that after 30 years of reform, we are not yet, we have not yet built the capacity of government to face the challenges of their time. And therefore, we continue to do things on the basis of a mental map that we have deeply internalized, and there are risk that more of the same is not going to get us closer to the goal. So it's in part um, what is behind the journey that we call the New Synthesis Project. Now, allow me to take a minute to recognize the fact that a project like this one cannot be done by a person. So it's not so much my book. I happen to be the one who was tasked to write it. But it's really a collective journey. And these journeys are not possible without many organizations coming together and many individuals making a contribution. So in the context of this country, I would mention organizations that have contributed, the IFG, the Cabinet Office, the National School, the LSE, and many others. And people have contributed by being committed. People like Gus O'Donnell, the Secretary to the Cabinet, Andrew Adonis, Michael Bichard, and many others, Simon Willis and Martin Stewart Weeks. Um, the work has been enriched by 200 people who came by and contributed knowledge, insights, experience, and so on. And then in this country, there's a long list. Eve, of course, came to some of our roundtable. People you may know, David Alpern, Jeff Morgan, Hilary Cottom, Irene Lika, Rod Clark, um, Tony Wright. And I would like to recognize Sue Richards, who was the Sherpa in this country for this initiative. 
So I'm indebted to them all, and multiply that by six countries, I now have a long list of IOUs of a, to at least 200 people around the world. Okay, so why did they all come together? Why were six countries asked, would you commit a bit of time and work together on questions as simple as, what is different about serving in the 21st century and what are you doing in practice to prepare? And why did they all say yes? And in fact, it was not hard to convince them. Everybody said yes the first time they were asked. Why is that? Because we're all facing the same challenges. Because we're, practitioners are all working at the edge of what is known, and we're all facing challenges for which we feel ill-equipped. So six countries immediately signed on, and 200 people over the course of 24 months contributed their knowledge and expertise, debating two sets of questions. What is different, if anything, about governing and serving in the 21st century? What are you doing in practice now in order to prepare your government for the challenges that stem from living in a post-industrial era? Two easy questions. Now, the system, the project was designed in such a way to make it what I call a blended approach. We deliberately reach beyond the traditional disciplines associated to public administration. Public administration has been deeply influenced by constitutional law, public law, and political sciences. We made it a deliberate commitment, we made a deliberate commitment to reaching to complexity theory, complex adaptive system, ecology, sociology, research on wellness, life satisfaction, and so on. Public admin has to be an integrative discipline. We relied heavily on case studies. I'm not saying best practices. I'm saying learning what is happening in practice, learning from what works, what doesn't work, where does it work, why did it work, in the way it did at that time and at that place. It was structured deliberately around international roundtables that were, were going to bring together scholars, members of the academic commu community, and practitioners. That helped us to bridge the divide between theory and practice and challenge both. Um, so um, we, after two years of work, we had such a wealth of um, testimony case studies, material, and so on, that the decision to produce the book imposed itself. Now, for those of you who may be student of public administration, there are schools of public administration that would present that domain as focusing on the structure, the processes, the methodology for the functioning of government. I would suggest that public administration is primarily interested in the relationship between government uh, society and citizens. And that from time to time, there are changes that reshape that relationship. And we live in such a time. That makes it a turbulent time. It is creating unprecedented risk, but also phenomenal opportunities to redefine the relationship between government, people, and society, to reposition government to what they do best, and to, in the process, to prepare society for the challenges of the 21st century. So, in spite of all the differences among the people who came together at the various roundtables, the 200 participants I talked about, in different culture, different context, different level of development, different languages, different... In spite of all of that, we all agreed on two things. 
And that was a surprise to me. I thought it would be something we would debate for a long, long time. And in fact, we came together very quickly on that. We agreed that there are significant differences about serving in the 21st century compared to any prior time. And we agreed that the model of public administration that we've inherited from the industrial age will not be sufficient to prepare government or society for the challenges that lay ahead. So, cutting on your reading time, I'm going to drive you some of the factors which, what is different about serving in the 21st century that would make it necessary to have a different way of thinking about the relationship between government and society. So let me go to that. And I should never forget to click from time to time. This is the NS project. You know all about it now. Governing in turbulent time. Let's see if I can get this to click. Yes, I'm on the right slide. Okay, first of all, what is different? Well, people in government today are facing an increasing number of complex issues. Like the people before them, they will face their fair share of difficult problems. An example would be eliminating a deficit. This is a difficult problem. They will face their fair share of complicated problems, and they will lead complicated initiatives. Treaty negotiations is complicated. Trade negotiation is complicated. Tax reform is complicated. Pension reform is complicated. Complex issues are different. So they will have their fair share of difficult and complicated problems, but they will face issues that cut across boundaries, that don't fit in any boxes, where multiple systems are interacting with each other and transforming each other. They will deal with issues that entail a very high degree of uncertainty, volatility. They are prone to cascading failures. They display emergent characteristics. They transform as actions are taking place. And no one is totally in charge. And no one has all the tools to bring about a viable solution. Complex issues are multidimensional. And whenever you try to reduce them to a single dimension, you're on the verge of making a dramatic mistake. Because by taking a solution or prescribing a solution which is unidimensional, you're about to make the problem even worse. Complexity and uncertainty are characteristic of the world that we live in. A second factor. People in government today are the first generation of public servants serving in a world where virtual communities transform the public policy issues as well as the context within which we will have to address these issues. The public sector reforms that were introduced before 1990, mid-1990s predate the general use of the internet. And the reforms that have been introduced prior to 2000 predate the rise and the strong impact of social media and social networking. Modern information and communication technologies transform the world we live in, but they also transform the relationship between government people and society. They contribute to complexity, they increase complexity, because they increase the density of connections, but they also provide new tools to deal with complex issues. So a conclusion flowing from these observations is that government cannot prepare itself and prepare society for the challenges of the 21st century with the tools of the 20th century. And we cannot address or find solution to the complex issues or intractable problems of our time by relying on the practices of the industrial age. It doesn't work. 
A third difference. Yes. There's an increasing disconnect between the complexity of the issues we're facing, citizen expectation, and what government can actually do in practice. An increasing number of policy results require exceed the capacity of the government. They entail a shared responsibility. They require a collective effort. And valuable solutions can only be framed with the participation of multiple actors and the contribution of citizens, families, and communities. Now, you can think of a number of issues that would meet this definition. <clears throat> issues of national interest, like health, education, safe streets. Issues of international interest, like security, energy supply. Global issues, like financial crisis, sovereign debt issues, or climate change. In all these cases, the role of government is increasingly to lever the capacity and the power of many others to co-create solutions and to co-produce results, because they are the only ones that bring momentum and bring concerted actions. And just for good measure, I would add my fourth point, which is people in government today are also expected to find ways to reduce tensions in a world with 7 billion people sharing an increasingly increasingly fragile biosphere. So, in summary, I would say government are called upon to serve in a context which is characterized by complexity, volatility, unpredictability, and that puts a premium on some capacities. It puts a premium on the capacity to anticipate emerging trends and emerging issues, on the capacity to initiate proactive intervention without certainty with imperfect knowledge, no safety net, and no guarantee of success. But you have to try. You have to try to reduce risk when the cost will be borne by society as a whole, and you have to try to initiate proactive intervention that may bring about a more desirable um, outcome or a, a better future. Unless you do, there are significant consequences to that. What I just described are not the traditional capacity that we have built in government. And I'll come back to that. Um, unless you do, then we know what is the trend. And we just have to read the newspaper every morning and to map out the, the way issues are evolving. Traditional approaches are leaving government in a reactive position, reacting in a crisis mode. When the cost is the highest, and the risk of consequences for the most vulnerable in society is the highest as well. Over time, it erodes trust, and over time, it erodes confidence in public institutions. Now, some would say, mm, it's not dramatic. Well, I think it is. Because it could be that the importance of institutions is greater today than it has ever been. So declining trust from time to time in government leaders or in government could lead to a change of leadership or even a change of government. But declining confidence in the capacity of institutions to serve the collective interests, or declining trust in our own ability to carve for ourselves and build for ourselves a better future creates instability, it leads to even more uncertainty, it leads to even more complexity, and it has uh, a potential for chaos. So none of that should be taken for too lightly. 
So let me move you into the framework. So after two years of work, what is the new synthesis proposing? Well, the new synthesis argues that the role of public organization is to achieve results of ever-increasing public value at a lower overall cost for society, and to do it in a manner that builds the collective capacity to achieve better results over time. Now, each time I say that, I have two simultaneous trans reactions. The first one is to say, I'm really gifted for discovering the obvious. And then as a practitioner with more experience than I would dare to talk about, um, I realize that although it sounds simple, it is in fact a phenomenal shift about the role of government, the role of public institutions, and the role of public servants. It is a shift of focus from, let's see if I can, Yes, to shift a focus from agency results to system-wide and societal results, it's, it is asking us to look at results as a collective enterprise. We've been focusing 30 years of reform on agency results. We've, we have 30 years of reform at looking at how we can do more with less, how we can increase efficiency and productivity. We have not been asking ourselves, how do we make sure that those improve the performance of society? And by that I mean economic performance, social, quality of life, wellness, life satisfaction. It asks us to look at results not as something government does, but as a collective enterprise. It is expanding the space of possibility to way beyond where, what has been the definition and the focus of attention of government. Uh, it positions the role of government in, in an ecosystem that brings together government, society, and people. This is not your traditional mental map of public administration, which is they are elected. Once elected, their decision amount to public serving the public interest, to delegated authority. We implement decisions, and every five years, there will be a chance to course correct or to modify priorities. This is way more complex and it is closer to an open system, which is a complex adaptive system, than a mechanical model, which is the one on which we've been uh, working. Now put yourself in the shoes of a public administrator in there. It means that those are four independent vectors, by the way. This is not plus one, minus one kind of game, and at the end you're just, you're just a dot in the picture. And this one, you have four vectors, and you have to try to optimize the relationship between them to find your way forward in the context of your country, in the circumstances, in light of your mission, with the constraint of your existing resources and capacity. So you have to mediate between public policy results and civic results. Public policy results, when you're looking at the big picture, it's going to give you a sense of direction. It's going to give you a measure of the progress of society as a whole. So for a public administrator, it means where does my agency fit in? What does it contribute to, which is system-wide? And how am I making a contribution that improves the performance of society? It says that a public servant serve a public purpose which happen to take shape within the program you administer, but that is not the extent of the definition of a role of public servant. And you have to mediate that progress along that value-added chain with another one, which is how does what you're doing today as a public servant in the program you administer in the agency of which you're part of, how does that contribute to building the, the, the civic results or the collective capacity for better results? 
How does it contribute to self-reliant individual? How does it contribute to building resilient communities? How does it contribute to a civic spirit that is conducive of collective action? It's not one or the other. You need to achieve both. To achieve these results, you're using everything we're very familiar with. You're using all the instrument of government, which is the capacity to legislate, to produce regulation, to tax, to spend, to be ultimately the guardian and the stewards of the collective interests in all circumstances, even the less predictable circumstances. So what this really means is that your public administrator not only has to move along two vectors to improve results of value to society, it has to use all the powers and authority vested in the program and unit that you're managing to lever the collective capacity. And it is at that price that you can move up the two-value-added chain. Sounds simpler than it is. And in the second part, we will, if you want, work through some example. Um, but this is a significant shift. Um, it means things like nothing of value is created. If by solving a problem in one system, you just transfer it to another, financial insolvency for debt, sovereign debt problem. So you fix something here, you just transfer it there. It means that nothing of value is created when the actions you're taking today simply mean that we're going to collectively face problems of greater complexity down the line. Some would think of example related to climate change. Nothing of value is created when the costs of the choices we're making today are at the expense of the capacity of future generations to shape the future of their choice by simply transferring the burden. So the game becomes, it's like playing your Rubik's Cube, it is quickly more complex than it appears at first glance. So when you become more adept at playing within the framework, you're starting to see that the system is co-evolving. You're trying to have a government that is able to adapt to changing circumstances and co-evolving with society. The book will give you numerous examples of the difference it makes in practice. When you start framing desired outcome in societal terms, in a positive way, and in a manner that opens the space of possibility for the way you can combine and recombine the, the various levers. So the framework is arguing that to prepare government for the 21st century, we need an emergence function, a resilience function, a performance function, and a compliance function. An emergence function to anticipate, course correct, and shape emergent solution. A resilience function to build the capacity of society to adapt and to prosper even in the face of adversity. A performance function to work across boundaries and across domain. And a compliance function to ensure social order, set priorities, allocate and reallocate resources. So let's look at them. This is where public administration comes from. It comes from a compliance model. Public, let me start by saying you don't prepare a government for the challenges of the future by misunderstanding the importance of the assets we have created and that we enjoy today. So the first step is to value and defend and protect the institutions that have been created 
that have give us, given us a fantastic comparative advantage compared to other countries who do not have the same institutional capacity. Public institutions matter. They give us a regime of law. They give us legitimacy for the exercise of power. They give us due process. They value compliance. They help to ensure certain, provide certainty or stability. All of these factors have contributed immeasurably to the success of countries like yours, mine, and many others that through the 20th century were going through the process of change related to democratization and industrialization. However, the public organizations under that model operate more or less as a closed system. And closed systems have a tough, tough time detecting emerging issues and systems designed to ensure compliance are not wired for innovation. So there are reasons why so many reforms introduced over a long period of time, 25 to 30 years, many of them have evolved and disappeared over time without leaving much of a trace. Because over time, the traditional system reaffirms itself. So to be fit for the time, public institutions that are designed for stability, predictability, and compliance must also be able to be used to serve in unpredictable circumstances, to invent practical solution to intractable problem, and they have to be used to build the resilience of society even in the face of adversity. And for that, we need new capacities. Now, do not let behind what has been created before. But at the same time, there's a need to acknowledge that it is not sufficient to prepare government and society for what is coming. For that, we need new capacity, and I would go to emergence. Everything I'm about to mention already exists in practice somewhere in the world. And everything I'm about to mention is supported by interesting examples that you may want to read about. The difficulty in the context of the new synthesis project was to find how, how to rise above the individual initiative and find how the pieces may fit together. But the challenge for all of us, wherever we may be, is what do we have to do for government and societies, for their capacity to invent solutions to keep pace with the increasing complexity of the context in which we all live? So let's look at some of the initiatives and practices that exist elsewhere. For government to be fit for the future, we need much, much better anticipative capacity. And there are countries that have been investing years of effort to improve their anticipative capacity. Now, as a colleague of mine said many times, you don't build the anticipative capacity of government because you just want to say, I make better projection. You want to do it because you want to make better decisions. You want to make better decisions that give you a better outcome, better results, and a comparative advantage for your country. That's why you're doing it. If you look at the countries that have been investing 10 to 15 years, I would say, in building their anticipative capacity, one observation you can make quickly is that the broader the conversation about possible futures, the better you are the greater the diversity of perspectives you bring to the conversation, and the better your capacity to detect emerging issues. But, as I said, this is not going to be enough. It's one capacity. It, it, builds, it gives you an asset, but it's not enough. 
To get the benefit of your enhanced capacity to anticipate emerging issues, you need the combined benefit of anticipation, invention, and innovation. And I'd like to just make you curious about the distinction between invention and innovation. Inventive solutions manifest a different way of thinking that breaks from the past. And it recombines factors that exist at that time, at that place. It may not entail the quantum of newness that you expect in an innovation, but it makes a world of difference. And again, you will find example in the book about the differences that inventive solutions can make. We look at health services in Scotland, self-regulated model in Charlotte. We look at the different way of providing services for elders in Denmark. Inventive solutions imply a form of experimentation on the ground. They are part of the context where they will be implemented. Now, supporting inventiveness, you don't find systems that do that extremely well. What you find is a culture or a mindset. It doesn't reflect a minimalist view of government where you leave it to pick the pieces after market failures. It doesn't reflect a government-centric view of government either where solutions always mean more resources. It is a form of affirmative concept of the state, the role of the state, where it is the job of government to look for better ways of doing things at a lower cost. Innovation, innovative society have the capacity to achieve better results with or without government. There again, government can play a role and you find governments which are way more attentive to that dimension. They create an environment that facilitates self-regulation and self-organization. They support infrastructure like public utility for your information communication infrastructure, public data as a source of innovation and recombination to create new, new system. All these measures together over time, when you accumulate them, give you an innovation ecosystem. No matter how smart we are and how innovative we're going to be and inventive we're going to be, um, unpredictable events will take place, unpredictable crises will emerge. And therefore, the role of government extends to building the resilience of their society. Now there again, you're likely to see that resilience is going to become the focus of attention in reform in a number of countries, as it is becoming the center of attention of more academic research, and for good reasons. There are many factors that contribute to resilience, but one thing it does is that no matter what the future holds for you, resilient individuals, resilient communities have a better capacity to absorb shock, to learn from them, and to emerge stronger. And again, you can easily map out similar events around the world, and some society will emerge stronger, and others will not recover or barely recover years later. So re resilience makes a huge difference in the capacity to absorb learn and prosper. To support that, you need many things. But let me mention a few. Some of resilient policies, for instance, are easy to test because they bring about positive results across systems, economic, social, political, environmental, technological. They reduce dependencies on one single way of doing things. 
and therefore they reduce the risk of the too, fail, too big to fail syndrome that we have seen in various places around the world. Resilient systems have an internal uh, surplus capacity, not only to absorb shock, but to avoid catastrophic failures. There again, you can think of example around the world. A focus on resilience in the design of policy creates space for the active role of citizens, families, and communities as value creator, as actors. Um, and one aspect that was striking for many of us was that recent research seems to indicate that the more active the role you give other actors, citizens, communities, the, the greater the contribution to life satisfaction and wellness. There's something very interesting there. So if I had to bring that back to where the story began, which is many years of reform, that we have all been conducting in your country and many others. The, if you go back to the reform agenda over a long period of time, you will find that most of them have focused on the inner workings, the inner functioning of government. They focus on structure, more centralized, more decentralized, more agency, less agency, bring it to the center, move it to the fringe, work at the edge, bring it back, connect it. Um, they focus on systems and practices, more with less, less with less, introducing modern technology. They have focused on efficiency and productivity and user satisfaction. They've done good things. But the sum total of these reforms do not prepare government or society for the type of the changing landscape I was trying to describe for you in the first part. There's a, a pressing need, I would not say urgent, but pressing to shift the focus of attention from the efficiency of the parts to the effectiveness of the whole. There is a pressing need and a good case to be made to shift the focus of analysis from agency results to societal results. Public agencies, if I go back to my performance quadrant, they were built and they were designed for the mass production of standardized public services and they do this well. They've been designed to ensure predictability and stability in the way these services are provided. But if they are going to rise to the challenges of the type of challenges I was talking about, they also need to become cooperation platform, co-creation platform, and co-production platform. So a word on age, and then I stop. Working across boundaries is a characteristic of public administration in the 21st century. The hierarchical model that is familiar to all of us may be the way departments are organized, and for good reasons. But distributed network is the way we get the job done. And that's not about to change. This is not about to disappear. And we have years of admonition for the need for whole of government approaches. We have years of admonition for the need for innovation. But there's an increasing disconnect between these admonition and what public servants are facing in practice. And to make sure that hierarchy and network coexist harmoniously side by side without undue pressure or tension between them, there are very basic things that need to be done. 
One, we need to align the incentive system in favor of cooperation instead of rewarding working in isolation. We need to disentangle compliance system from performance management system. And I would be happy to go back to that and explain why. And we need to go back to our basic system of budgeting, reporting, and accountability to take account of shared responsibility for collective enterprise. Those are not rocket sciences. It's not even complex. It's basic reengineering. But unless it is done, it is not possible to pretend that we really want agencies to be innovative and to work across because we are not giving them the infrastructure from which they can do it. If there was a point on which there was a high degree of consensus among the six countries and, and participating in the project was the disturbing disconnect between what we say and what we have been actually doing in practice in support of hierarchy and network working together. Co-creation. In the traditional approach, we have a tendency to look at a policy de at, as a policy as a decision. And decisions are made as if government was in control of the issue and as if a decision was sufficient to bring about the results. But in reality, since an increasing number of issues are beyond the reach of government, policies are experiment in progress. Policy decision and implementation cannot be divided. They are inseparable. And a successful policy response to an issue, a complex issue in particular, depends on the capacity of government to bring together service provider, interested parties, user, beneficiaries, and so on. So public organizations need to continue to do what they do well, and on top of that, they need the capacity to work as co-creation platform to design, to test, and to experiment various options and different ways of doing things. And there again, we have found, we're still finding, fantastic example of the difference it makes when you're co-creating solution with users and beneficiaries. What I find so interesting is that we have found example where co-creating the solution gives you much better result at a lower total cost for society. And in theory, I presume this should be of interest for any country who are facing stringent fiscal constraints. Um, there are many ways to eliminate a deficit. Uh, one of them is to find a, and to invent a better way of achieving results. Another one is to share the responsibility differently between government, people, and society. We may come back to that if that is of interest to you. Co-production. Co-production is not a new word or a new excuse for um, devolution, offloading, and cost-cutting. Co-production refers to the coming together of multiple actors and in particular the users as value creator in producing the results. And there again we try to provide examples, some of them quite fantastic in the health sector. Um, children with complex disease and multiple diseases, elder uh, capacity of maintaining elder at homes and so on. Uh, Co-production opens a new avenue between a simpler way of looking at the world, which is an issue is either public or private, it is opening a space in between, which is basically saying a matter of social interest has a private, public, and civic dimension to it. And in that expanded space, you have better options than a simply government-centric option or market-centric option. In the end, all the pieces must fit together. What is this? 
This is not the right diagram, but we'll cope with it. Um, everything must fit together, and the challenges before us cannot be addressed in the usual way. It cannot be addressed in the mechanical model that we have created, which is the reflection of the industrial age. It works, it has worked well, and it will continue to work well for what it does well. It does well everything that is related to a high degree of predictability. It works well for mass production of uniform services or standardized services in a relatively stable and predictable environment. We need something else so that government can also do more than what it was able to do before. We need new capacities to make sure that we can anticipate what might be. We need the capacity to make pro proactive intervention to prevent what can be prevented. And we need new capacity to adapt to what will be, and that is resilience. In a way, what I'm saying is that traditional approaches should be respected and valued, and that is the starting point of building capacity. But they are too narrow to accommodate today's reality and to guide practitioners' action. And the reform to date have been insufficient to give us the solutions or the element of solutions to problems that stem from living in a post-industrial era. So the new synthesis project has taken us that far. It is a modest contribution, but not insignificant, because it is basically challenging the mental map and the intellectual framework that we have taken for granted for so long. And it is also telling us that more reform of the same type will not get us where we want or need to be. So it has taken us thus that far, and it's about to enter into a new phase as we expand the conversation from six to much more country, from 200 participants to many more, and as we expand the scope of the discussion. If we want to have a chance to have government fit for their time on some issues, at least on some issues, our thinking needs to be ahead of the time. And that is going to be the next step for the new synthesis project as the NS6 become NS World. We are going to move the information on the website, um, and then we will see how we frame the research agenda going forward. And you may want to check from time to time. We're not hard to find. You may be part of the next chapter in that journey. Thank you all. Thank you, Jocelyn. Um, when you ask a question, please, can you also say who you are and your affiliation, um, where you're from? And can I request that they are questions, not long statements? You can, you're very welcome to make a comment, but not give another lecture. So do I have anyone dying to ask a question? Yes. We've got two here. One, yes. Hi there, I'm Tony Drew, and I do lots of different things at the moment, so I'm a sort of portfolio worker. From what you were saying, there seems to be some parallels between the societal changes in the Age of Enlightenment, however many years ago that was. Do you think we're entering a similar stage of the progression of humankind, if I might put it like that? Well, we'll find out, won't we? Um, 
period of time in which we are is going to be what we have the ability, ingenuity to shape. Um, I think what this is saying is that do not assume that the linear projection of what we've been doing is going to support us, number one. Do not assume that the element of the circumstances in which we are are the extension of what we have been experiencing before. And therefore, let's pull together so that we can invent different solutions because the old one or the traditional one will continue to do traditional things. Will we be enlightened? I don't know. I really hope that we build the capacity of society and government in a way that keep pace with the increasing complexity of what we're facing, and it's not obvious right now. Are we keeping pace? No. Is the world becoming complex faster than our capacity to deal with the emerging issues? Yes. So is it optimistic? Yes, it is. Because is it beyond our capacity? No. But are we keeping pace right now? I would not say yes. This is an oblique way of dealing with your question. There are real risks. You see, we did not, government did not anticipate the impact of communication technologies in the way they are transforming society. They were not ready for the impact of uh, mass media and social media. They were not ready for uh, biologically modified agriculture products. They were not ready. I mean, there are so many elements on which we were not quite ahead of the thinking so that the proper environment, regulatory regime, and so on could be thought through. So yes, we can continue to be just, just in time behind the facts. Or we can say, OK, what are the capacities that I need to build that give me an edge? And we may or may not use the edge, but let's build it. And this is saying we can build it. So in that sense, very optimistic. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen, but, uh, but please speak into the microphone. I'm K. Mahesh. I'm a LLM student, but a civil servant from India. And uh, you have selected those six countries. Uh, you missed out India as part of the BRICS framework. Well, uh, but anyway, uh, you talked about the challenges of the 21st century. You listed them. I found corruption was not present in one of the challenges. Why is it so? And B, is this framework applicable to the, uh, to the developing countries as well? Where there is corruption, where is, there is ethnic strife, there is lack of secular governance. Yep. Can that model work in this context? Thank you. Two good questions. Yeah. The, the framework does not go from issues to describing how the environment is changing for governing. So it doesn't talk about the rise of China and the rise of India and the, ther the, the threat for security and uh, the transition from energy to, to other form of, it doesn't, it's not an e a matrix of issue analysis. I mean, there are all kinds of analysis that do that. What are the drivers of change in the world? In, it did not look at it that way. So in that sense, it doesn't talk about corruption in the sense that you just mentioned. Um, is the framework relevant to developing countries? My guess was initially not really, but I'm rethinking now. And I'm going to mention two things. It was used by a conference of the Commonwealth Secretariat, which are developing countries by and large, and my great surprise was the agility within which people were playing from compliance to resilience. Immediately, 
immediately because they have strong communities, because they have a strong culture, sometimes too much strong relationship uh, at the family level or expanded family level and so on. But they played immediately between compliance and resilience and I thought there was a humbling lesson there. It's going to be used again at the CAPAM, Commonwealth Association mm -hmm. of Public Administration and Management Biennial Conference in Delhi in October. And they will have workshop testing it for various group of countries. So it will be fascinating. Give me your card and I will give you the results of their work. But the hypothesis now is that yes, it would work for developing countries. Would it work for LDCs, the less developing countries? I have serious doubts. But let's find out would be my answer. Can you actually go back to the framework so that we can be looking at it while you're talking? Because it would be good to um, be reminded of the, of the framework. And while you're doing that, um, I, I, okay, there are the young lady here and the gentleman there afterwards. No, it's not on. Cox, I work for a local government. Um, Can you say who you are, please? Esme Wilcox, I work for a local you, government. Esme. I'm really interested in how you engaged with uh, some of the politicians around this, because that seems to be one of the key challenges, how you have, um, how you engage politicians in something which isn't about them having the answers and where the, you know, the forces are for them to come up with kind of a reductionist theory because that's, how, that's what gets them elected. So I'm really interested in that. Well, that's interesting too. I was quite tentative at first when I was working with elected officials about, you know, debating or exploring this. I've been pushed back time sufficiently now that I'm less shy in the way I approach ministers. And you know what I'm discovering is that they feel very comfortable very quickly because the one stable point in the whole framework is this one. You start the game playing with the vectors from there. And that's where they are. So, and at the same time, it gives them comfort because instead of saying, your decision is the final be-all and end-all for a solution to the problems of the world, you're saying you're part of it. So you almost have a sigh of relief as if you're working properly with them that they are not or should not be expected to have the answer to, to all of it. They should be expected to foresee to initiate proactive intervention and to encourage others to do what they can, they are in best position to do. So it changed the space within which you are allowing them to play. I was telling a minister after being pushed back, you know, about what's in it for you, minister. I told a minister that I would never again draft a question and answer for question period for a minister the way I did in the past. I took the question, I gave them the answer. I would still give the minister the answer, but I would help the minister frame the issue so that the government is doing, but in order to work, it requires that citizens and family and communities and others, and I would help frame the issue. I would help them reconcile the need for short-term actions with the longer timelines to achieve complex results which I was not trained to do. You must have the answer on all questions at all time. Well, I can afford to look back on what I've done and say, well, that was a disservice to some of my ministers. I can do better now. I don't have a minister to serve, which is very, 
different phase in my life, but I would do it differently. So are ministers comfortable with this? More than I thought. And that was your reasoning when you raised the question. And you can tell why, you can see why when you start thinking for them, right? Or in their place. They are here. They have the authority of the state. They have the authority of government. They can tax. They can spend. They can regulate. And they know better than most what are the limits of that authority. They can tax to build a hospital. That is not enough to create a healthy population. They can spend to have public school. This doesn't give you literacy. People learn. And countries spending way less than others in health and education have better societal results. So other factors are at play. And they are not there. They are here and they are there. And ministers know that in their bone. They know the limit, the power of what they have and the limit of what they have. And when you start exposing that, saying, ministers, it is a shared responsibility. It's a collective effort. You can just see what it does to the issues they are dealing with. We give them more What this does is give more space to find solutions or to explore solutions. Mm -hmm. But it does one Am more I making thing. sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you follow? Yeah. I think it's important to actually think about this framework in, um, as what it helps us to think through how to co-create an enabling environment. And I think this is the key because to address any kind of complex challenge, we cannot address it in one dimension. Correct. It cannot be just finance or just restructuring Correct. or Correct. just culture. It is, there are multiple issues that have to um, be addressed at the same time. Why? Because they are multiple causalities which create and recreate a complex issue and they influence each other and keep changing it. Now the point is, how can we think about co-creating an enabling environment using that framework? And I was wondering if perhaps this may be the time to give us at least one example that may illustrate it, and then I'll take the other questions. I'll give you one example quickly, and if time permit, another one. Uh, the, example, the first example is in the book. It's, I'm going to take a case which is law and order, because normally there's somebody who's saying, well, that's interesting, which is a nice way to start a question. This is so interesting, but my mission or my organization is in law and order and therefore does not apply to me. So I'd like to take the case of Singapore, the people managing the prison network in Singapore. They manage jail. They are agency. They manage a network of agencies. And as agencies, they have fantastic results. As the gentleman in charge of the jail system said, mm -hmm. nobody has ever escaped. They are not getting injured in jail. They are safe. We protect them. And we have good ratio for the use of resources to the number of people in jail. So from an agency perspective, I, the manager, I'm doing a great job. I should get a bonus, by the way, and performance pay and whatever comes with that. However, once an inmate, always an offender, and you will have no second chance in society. And therefore, it took what was an agency result, if I can go back eventually, it took what was an agency result and framed it as a societal desire result. And he said, we should be contributing 
to the successful reintegration of, of inmates. Makes sense. Why? Because it means that you're not going to waste all this human capital. It means that they will be productive in society. It means you lower your cost, you improve your results. So this is really framing from the perspective of an agency, where do I fit in and what can I contribute to society? So the successful reintegration of inmates. As soon as you do that, as soon as you move outside of the walls of your agency, you're, you're now framing it with the complexity, the multiple dimension of the issue. And you're going to say immediately, well, I cannot do it from where I am. True enough. So then you have to ask who else can contribute to this. And you have to search for the connection between multiple actors and multiple agencies. In their case, what they choose to do was to work for two years at changing public opinion. Because unless public opinion is prepared to give a second chance, everything else is going to fail. So they went from society, desired societal result to civic results, which is changing public opinion. After two years, they made progress. And they started to see that it was possible for employers to come forward with job employment job opportunity, which in turn made it possible for families to support their own, which made it possible for the ex-offender to believe that a chance was possible and to invest in their skills, which made it possible to change the way you were using your staff in the agency. With much less resources, you could have more mentor and coach than, than wardens. Uh, they have 10 years of data. So you need some patience in public policies to see the results. But after 10 years of data, you see reintegration going up, cost to society going down. Now, is it the ideal justice system? Nobody is saying that. Have they set a journey for themselves where they can map out if they are achieving progress? Yes. Do you have evidence that they are getting closer to the desired outcome? Yes. Is it the end of the journey? Well, it never ends. Whatever you do become the base from which you're going to explore again this space of possibility. It never ends. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you very much. Absolutely. The gentleman there. Thank you. Um, I'm Hendrik Wagener and from the University of Sheffield, but I'm asking this question in my capacity as a citizen of the Netherlands, one of the countries that is in your in your project. And I find it a fascinating story of progressive uh, public administration and I recognize a lot of it um, in, the, in local government, local governance. So this, this, this drive to experiment, to co-produce services with citizens and other societal actors, a focus on, on what you call civic results, etc., etc. I don't recognize this at all at the national level. In fact, there I see a regressive movement where an elite retrenches within their offices, uh, tries to develop policy making in a very authoritarian style, in a data-free environment, ideologizing most issues, etc., etc. So I would like you to comment on this disconnect, and isn't this, I don't think it's just the Netherlands here, mm. um, between the local government and uh, national governments, and what it means for your mm. model. Most of the issues we were talking about were national. In fact, one of the weakness is that we did not have a lot of local example, 
and we had we have even fewer global true global example so the material that came forward was national issues by and large so that's the substance from which we we extracted that keep in mind that this is looking from academic research to what is happening in practice in bite size so in every country you're going to find diamonds or diamonds in the rough of something which is inspirational that has a lot of potential and so on and when you blend the two and you say if I had to synthesize what is coming from research and what is appearing here and there in practice how would it all fit together it gives you a framework it doesn't mean that you're going to find a country that mapped this out Right? So you're going to work on anticipative capacity. And you will find that in the UK there has been an interesting example to create a foresight capacity. But you're going to find that Singapore has been creating systems which are probably among the best in the world. And you're going to find that Finland has created a committee of the future that brings parliamentarians looking 25 years out. Does it mean that any one of these three countries do everything described as capacity in the framework? Of course not. So this is not based on some country are exemplary and others are not. It is of the sum of our ingenuity, of the sum of what we know and what is happening, so we know it can be done. If we had to integrate a different mental map and the one from which we've been working, what would it look like? And then it's for every country in their circumstances to decide what they do. I know of country not too far from me that can read the case from Singapore on jail and say, it doesn't matter to me. I want them to stay in jail for as long as possible, and if they have no future, it's okay. So it's a choice. This is not telling you what is the right choice or the wrong choice. It helps to reveal the consequences of our choices. You see, it's a lens. It's a mental map. But what is interesting is the power of a different mental map combined with different ways of doing things in terms of the range of options you suddenly have. And connectivity between all these four spaces that I've not explored today and will explore soon is a major, major factor, major factor. Those are not four isolated spaces. They all play together. And that gives you a capacity to reveal the consequences of choices. And you can, country will decide whatever path they want to follow. Okay. If I can see the hands, I know the gentleman at the back lady here. Okay. It's just that I can't see people over there, that's why I'm standing up. Okay, over here, please, first, yes. Thank you. Um, my name's Eileen Conn, and I'm speaking partly as a former public policy official in the Treasury in the UK, um, and also as an active community citizen. Um, and I've been working for some time from complexity theory and complex adaptive systems to think about the relationship between what I call the organizational dynamics of the citizenry um, and the relationship to the kinds of systems that you're talking about here. So the question that's going through my mind is, and I, I resonate with it, and I think that where I'm working is in the bottom right-hand corner um, and the dynamics in the citizenry and how it relates to all of that. But the question that's going through my mind is, is that a mental model for the public policy official? Does it include and incorporate the area that I'm working in, which is actually not those authority systems, but the systems, the dynamic human, quite different dynamics of the citizenry and how they interact. So that's really, and I, I mean, it doesn't matter what the answer is, I'm just interested in what your thought is, and I'd very much like to have some way 
of linking the model and different mental model that I've been designing for the relationship between the citizenry and all this interrelated into yours. So I'm very glad that there's some kind of way you're now expanding your activity. I would be curious now to hear about the work you're doing and the research you're, you're doing. A friend of, uh, of ours, and I was looking at, at Sue Richards, uh, a lady from Brazil, when we were working on this, told us one day at one of the round table, this is the only public admin framework we have that brings the citizens in. I mean, the model we've been working from, right, the, what we call the classic public administration model, is people are voters, taxpayers, users, or beneficiaries. They are not actors, they are not value creators, they are not contributors, and they should not disrupt the well-organized machinery uh, of public agencies. This is very, very stark, right? So the models start from, the classical models start from once upon a time they have the right to vote. Once they have exercised that right, those they have elected make decisions. These decisions amount to serving the public interest. These decisions are implemented with minimal variation in a predictable way in a stable environment. And what this is saying is that doesn't compute with the world in which we are. The uh, citizens are, want to have a say, and they have ways to make sure that they have a say. They want to have voice, choice, actions, decisions, participation, contribution. And therefore, any concept of public administration that doesn't bring people in is behind by at least almost a, well, behind by a long time. So what this is trying to do is to bring people as actors, as political beings, I would say, people with society and government. After all, government are public institutions we've created to look after the collective interests. So I'd be, I repeat, I'd be curious to know what you're doing, but we're, it is clearly trying to be, bring people in, in many, many, many ways. I think we will have plenty of time during the reception. So Eileen, I hope that you join us for a glass of wine and then you can have a, a long chat with um, Jocelyn. The gentleman at the back. Yes. Yes, thank you. Mine is related to the, the gentleman from Sheffield as can well as the last... Can you say who you are, please? And oh, where you're I'm showing for the... Uh, social researcher from the west of London. Uh, my, my question is uh, the curiosity of how, in the question of compliance uh, and its relation to the western OECD countries, who seem reluctant to opt out of your, the 20th century post-industrial mindset with reference to compliance, particularly at international level rather than the local level. For example, things like the climate change at Copenhagen, the conference, and with reference to the Euro, how do you think that your framework or the new synthesis can be applied considering the current turbulent times we live in? Any possibilities? Uh, there's two aspects that I'd like to separate in a way. This is arguing that compliance is a good thing. Controls are a good thing. Um, if you have a law and rule of law, you need to be able to enforce them. There's not much point making laws you have no capacity to enforce, but that's another story. So this is not saying compliance is a bad thing. It is saying it's a good thing, but be careful that you do not 
use the regulatory power to propose things you have no capacity to enforce and no capacity uh, for which to, no capacity to ensure compliance because it erodes the credibility of what you're doing. So it is arguing that there's a place for compliance, there's a place for control mechanism, there's a place for uh, overseeing the implementation. This compliance approach doesn't work too well for truly complex issues because no one has the power or the authority to make it happen. Global climate change is a good example. There is no one, no global forum, no international forum, be it the OECD or any country, that can say, I decide to make a law that I will enforce and this is it. You're not in the world of compliance. So when you're dealing with climate change, it is the coming together of many minds and framing a problem definition that people can support that gives you the chance for concerted action that move you forward. It's a different space. You're much more in the emergent space that I was talking about. Yes, you need some institutional capacity behind. And yes, the UN resolution matter and the OECD statement matter. But we should not assume that this is equivalent to compliance. It is more policy intent. It is moral suasion. It is policy direction. But you're really trying to find a space where people can come together with a common problem definition that gives them a chance of acting in a concerted way. So it is not a law and order model that you're talking about. You're really talking about a different, different process. It's multidimensional. It is all sectors are connected. The economy, the social, the environmental, the technological play on one another. You're really dealing with a different space. You're not in law and order. And that's the issue, right? I mean, we have international meeting, we write a document, we seem to think or pretend that we've now made a law that we can enforce. Well, when you have authority, it's very important to understand the limit of your authority. It's a source of wisdom. You wish to come back? Right. Can you? Oh, it's really, really uh, stimulating what you said. Now, this model you talked about, say, within a country and the international public policy, will there be differences? When, if, it's a, if it's an issue of international public policy, international public policy. Good question. Yeah. As I said, we did not work with enough material which were truly global issues. Uh, one of the discussions we're going to have is with the Martin School and others, mm -hmm. uh, where they would like to test the framework, I'll come back to the difference between model and framework, on global and international issues. As I said, the work is 24 months of work. It is what it is. So not enough tests at the true local level, not enough tests on truly complex international issues. My hypothesis now is that it would work, but we need, to, we need to do it properly. Okay, model and framework. This is not a model. A model gives you an answer. Okay, so the classic model of public administration gives you a definition which is finite, gives you a box, you're in it. Okay? The new public management was an extension of the classical model. This is a framework. You have no answer. You have to work out the answers for yourself in the context of your country, depending on the issue you're trying to resolve, the results you want to achieve with the capacity you have. 
And the way you will go about it will be vastly different if you're a developing country, an emerging economy, or depending on the culture in the country. It doesn't give you a fixed answer. It says, I'm trying to move up to value chain, better results, greater collective capacity for better results over time. I have the authority I have. Who else can contribute to that? How do I bring all of that together? It gives you a space to explore. It doesn't give you the comfort of an answer. This is tough. <laughs> it's demanding. Yes. Thank you. My name is Sarah Wolcott from the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex. Um, that was really, really quite illuminating, and I'm particularly impressed that you managed to combine um, um, some of the the work from Panarchy into into this into this oh. framework here. That's that's quite a theoretical. <laughs> um, well done. <laughs> Um, I'm actually wondering two questions. I'm, we're hoping to be embarking on a similar journey, although it's not, it's very much in flux at the moment. Um, and we're hoping to be doing so primarily within the context of emerging markets. And in that context, um, the way in which systems are very much emerging is one in which there isn't, they're not fighting as much against an old model. So it's not old model versus new model, let's create new model. That's, it's a less of an issue. Um, much more of an issue is we have lots of different actors coming together, particularly the private sector, and you're getting these sort of networks at, at both local, meza, and, and meta level. And how do you, how would you imagine these frameworks sort of working with um, private sector um, and citizen and public sector domains where it's it's not it's not as clear cut which one's which right mm -hmm. and, and I mean I know you've you're quite aware of how much these things overlap anyway but so how, where do you sort of see those other sectors of society playing a role in a framework like this mm -hmm. you would need to do that to unpack every one of the four vectors so if I look at public policy results Remember I said quickly, it's about economic performance, standard of living, quality of life, wellness, and life satisfaction. Okay, so f flip that fan. And then I said, well, this framework is trying to bring government, people, and society. Society, again, I went very quickly on that. I said, well, this is a matter of, pu of collective interest, normally include public, a public dimension, a private dimension, a civic dimension and many others. So if you take this vector and expand it, then you will look at what do I do through the market, what do I do through civic society, how does it all interplay, right? There's a limit to how much you can do in a setting like this one or by using four vectors. But you're right, all of that is behind every one of your vectors. Okay, each one is multidimensional, that's basically what I'm saying. But then everybody would get lost. I mean, it was complicated enough as it was. <laughs> Did you want to come back? Yes, but we give her the. There's something about the public policy results. I'm wondering if you could actually, like, if that wasn't specifically about public policy, what, what is it about? Could you just say a bit more about what's really, what do you really mean by that? It's a societal result at the end. Okay, so if you are, if you start from, I'm in government somewhere, I'm part of an agency, 
And agencies serve more than the program and services than they administer. They serve a public purpose. So where do you fit in? Where does that program, this service, and agency fit in? What are you contributing to that is broader than you, is the question you would ask a public servant managing a program. So I'm a nurse, and I manage a program for the inoculation of children to reduce child mortality. So my public purpose is more than to give inoculation to children. I'm part of the effort of many in society to reduce child mortality. Well, who else is contributing to that? People themselves, their family, uh, schools, uh, doctors, the um, quality of water, depending on where you are in the world, uh, access to food, and so on. So it gives you, it starts, I said, remember I said this is the most stable of all the vectors, and then everything is moving. So what is this part of that is bigger than the program, the service, and the agency? What is the system-wide? I just gave an example of system-wide. How does that contribute to societal results? And societal results are multi-dimensional. Multi it cannot be reduced to GDP or GDP per capita. In that sense, very compatible with the work done by the OECD. Saying if you want to get a scorecard of the performance of your country, you need a basket of indicators, and you need at least four baskets. In that sense, the work we've done is quite compatible with that. And that's what I mean. If you want to unpack each one, then you, you have multiple dimensions behind each one. Goodness. Uh, <laughs> right. We are actually coming to the end. So uh, I've seen at least three hands. So can we take all three questions, and then you can answer them as, sure. as a group. Gentlemen at the front, then lady in the middle, and there was one other hand. And the gentleman at the back. Hi, I'm Tim Hughes from Involve. Um, I'm interested in, um, if, if I were a, a public manager, um, what advice would you give me in terms of how to, and if I were, I guess, uh, sold on the need for this, what advice would you give me in terms of building capacity within my organization um, to, to act in, in, within this world? Because it seems that if, if you look at the framework in terms of um, within an organization, we've tended to work through the uh, compliance and performance side of that. Yes. So, what, what do we need to do on the other side of that framework within organizations to make them kind of ready? Okay. Lady in the middle, yes? Hi, I'm Laura. I'm a student of political theory here at the LSA. Um, I'm just interested in this dynamic of resilience, and if you could give us an example of um, uh, successful government policies or um, technologies that have stimulated this capacity for resilience in the citizenry. And gentlemen at the back. Hello, I'm Vikas Chandra. I'm a research officer with the complexity group here at LSE. Uh, my question is, uh, people might participate, but they don't want to, uh, maybe in some cases. So for instance, I'm thinking of the recent announcement by David Cameron. He says that all patients in England can be researchers, so the data relating to health records of those patients are going to be put online. Uh, so how does your framework help us understand that situation? Mm -hmm. 
to Tim. I was in government today and I was, asked where, I was asking myself, where do I start? And let's assume that I'm a junior manager, just to make me feel better, uh, and I have a small unit. Um, I would start by giving me, myself, the freedom of mapping out what exists. I think there's great wisdom in walking in their footsteps, so whether I provide a service, which is my example with nurses or running a school and so on. What does it look like from the user and beneficiary perspective? And let's map it out so that I see in fine detail what is it they're really going through. I would walk in their shoes, I would sit in their chair, I would go through the process, and I would be horrified. And then I would do it for what does it look like for the people around them. Sometimes it's a family, sometimes it's their peers, sometimes it's their communities. And then I would be amazed at what we've created and the impossibility of it all. And once I've done that, then I would have reason to be humble. And I would say, I don't think I could do worse by working with them to co-create a better solution and to co-produce with them a better results than this. And you know what? I know I can do it at a lower cost than what it is today. And I don't think any country is rich enough right now, or has ever been, to do what citizens and other actors are best positioned to do themselves. So I would start there by giving me permission to not take anything for granted and to map it out. And I think that would be the starting point of my journey today. It was not, uh, not so long ago. I, the first thing I always did when I go somewhere is give me all my laws. I want to know what is the extent of the authority I have. Uh, and if it's not there, it doesn't exist. I would start differently. Okay, so that's one. About mapping out or simulating the resilience, somebody asked. Yes. I'm not aware that there is such a thing. Uh, the closest I found was New Zealand, who has done some uh, work many years ago for a long period of time on building community resilience. I would not call that modeling nor simulation. There's a fantastic conference coming up that Cisco is organizing at the Oslo Conference uh, Seminar on Governance. Their focus is going to be on resilience, so I may discover more. Uh, but my prediction is that it's central to this. My, my guess is that resilience should be and may become the center of public sector reforms going forward because it transforms so many things. And you know when I said we're not talking tonight about the connectivity about the four? Well, when you start playing with co-creation, it builds resilience. Co-production, it builds resilience. Uh, working as cooperative platform, it builds resilience. Everything that engage individual families and communities contribute to resilience. And remember when I said I'm amazed to find that the more you do of that, which you think is demanding and difficult for people, the more you have, the better data you get for life satisfaction and wellness. Well, do you prefer to be, no, okay, I won't say that. Okay, now the gentleman about yes. participation and uh, people don't want to do these things. I'm with them, I'm with them. We have to be decoding or unpacking 
citizens' participation, consultation, engagement, and so I'm not talking about that. I'd never used that word. I don't think I did. I talked about co shared responsibility for public results. I talked about co-creation, co-production. Now, I think we've made significant mistakes in the way we've approached citizen engagement. We've assumed, almost assumed, that the private life of citizen has no value, that there is nothing greater they can do in life than to attend town hall meetings to be consulted on the last paper produced by a unit somewhere. So I think there's confusion about the value of citizens' contribution to society and the value of their participation in being consulted on, on the, the latest ideas of somebody. I think they want the elected officials to do their job, and they want public agencies to be able to achieve results and to do things on their own. We're talking about something different. I think we've abused of the language of consultation and consultation and citizen engagement. I think there's a myth that people want to be consulted on everything. I think people want to know that their voice would be heard if they wanted to be heard on question of interest to them. And I think modern technology is giving us the means to give them these ramps and this capacity to be heard on matters of interest to them. I don't think they want government to second guess what matters of interest to them. I don't think they want government to second guess on what matter they would like to play a more or less active role. So co-creation and co-production is quite different. It's not about consult me. It's not about invite me to another yet again town hall meeting. It is what is the space within which I'm a value creator, valued and recognized for it, and you gave me the instrument so that I can create, so that I can produce. Um, so it's a, different, it's a different thing. And that's why connectivity is so central to this, to this whole design, and therefore resilience and therefore resilient. So I'm not assuming, if this is what uh, was said, I agree with them, I'm not assuming that participation is always better. I'm not assuming that people are all dreaming every night to be participating more or being consulted more. But I do believe that people want to be heard on matters of their choice. They want to be actors. They want to be recognized for their contribution because it is huge. It is huge. The issues that matter to people exceed the capacity of government on their own. We have 30 years of reform in a government-centric focus. This is forcing us to have a governance and societal-centric focus. It gives you a different picture, and it goes back to my first answer. Okay. Thank you. Now, I, I have invited... Um, Professor Sue Richards, to just give us some reflections, because she has participated in all the um, roundtables. We only have about a minute. <laughs> so, Sue, just if, if you can bring the, yes, uh, just some quick reflections, please, to finish. The Absolutely. Eve's um, given me all of five minutes to uh, notice of this. So, uh, um, you know, I would have loved to have done a long speech. Um, to express my thanks to uh, Jocelyn for um, two years of fascinating work. Um, but I think um, what you've experienced tonight is what attracted me in the first place to um, this work, and that is one of the world's great reflective practitioners of public administration. So um, part of what you've seen is the depth 
that, of experience and learning from that experience that lies behind um, this framework um, and the thoughts that um, have emerged from her now quite wide-ranging global career as a, as a, as a consultant and a teacher um, in this, um, on, this, on this framework. Um, for me, the opportunity of um, spending time with people from five other countries on this territory, um, but seeing how different they were, uh, was an absolutely fascinating one, and it threw into relief the strengths and weaknesses of the UK system. Somebody earlier asked about how optimistic Jocelyn was about whether we can actually use this to go forward. I would be more optimistic if I thought there were more reflective practitioners like Jocelyn around um, in our system. Um, what I see, actually, um, picking up the local government uh, question from earlier, and I used to work in the Institute for Local Government Studies at uh, the University of Birmingham, is um, a whole set of people, whether political leaders or officials, officers, um, able to work across that territory, um, but looking at central government, far fewer people able to do that, imprisoned in a way on the left-hand side as we look at it um, of that, um, that mental map, and not in many cases able to break through because they don't have the same immediate connections with citizens um, aren't open enough, therefore, to emerge in this use as they come around. So I think for the six countries, there are six pathways out of this. But um, the, um, the quality of the elucidation of the issues and the comparisons um, that Jocelyn can make across those six and others, I think, um, offers us enlightenment um, and the opportunity to go forward. So that's probably more than a minute, and I could go on, but I will stop at that Thank point. Thank you very much, Sue, actually. Thank you so much. Okay, I'd like to bring the public lecture to a close and um, with a couple of um, announcements, first of all. If the technology works, then there will be a podcast of the lecture this evening. So those of you who, you know, those of your colleagues who may not have been here today and wish to see it, or if you want to see it again, you'll be able to do so, as I said, providing that the technology does work. Um, secondly, I'd like to thank all of you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your questions. And please join us for a glass of wine and a few nibbles. It will be in the senior common room. That's on the fifth floor of the old building. There will be plenty of people who can show you where to come. There are um, books outside that you can buy, and Jocelyn will be more than happy to sign them for you, but at the senior common room. That's an, a, an additional incentive for you to come and join us for a glass of wine. I would also like very much to thank Cisco, because they are um, hosting, they are sponsoring um, the reception. So Cisco, thank you very much indeed. I know we have some representatives from the um, organization um, here. And of course, I have to now thank Jocelyn, because I think apart from bringing all these governments together of, in fact, 
um, encouraging them to, to think beyond their usual ways of thinking um, and then writing it all for the benefit of the rest of us, I think it has been an amazing task. And, um, but this, this is the beginning of the next <laughs> phase, isn't it? So please join me to thank Jocelyn.